You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Hello, my name is Greg Carter. How are you guys doing? I am the worship pastor here, uh, but today I get to teach and share as we continue our series called Little Books. It's called Little Books. Now, it's, it's interesting, not only are these the shortest books uh, but they are also the most, most of them are most the, um, also the most neglected and overlooked books in our collection of scripture. They are like the obscure track that you skip over on an album. They are like the lesser known deep cut of scripture. And for some reason, this reminded me of the catalog of music from the Beatles. All right, most of us know the big hits from the Beatles. Most of us know Yellow Submarine, Yesterday. Most of us know All You Need Is Love, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And that's like the first level of knowledge. That's like the base level of knowledge. But as you go beyond that, you know, some of us go a bit deeper. And at that next level, um, maybe some of you know um, the lesser known album tracks, you know, the medley at the end of Abbey Road. Or maybe you know the quiet acoustic songs, songs on the, the White Album. But then as you keep going, as you keep going deeper, uh, you know, a, there's level after level, and eventually you reach a level, you know, the deepest level of Beatles knowledge. And maybe at this point, you know the unreleased songs and the obscure B-sides and even the instrumental tracks that only appeared in the background of that animated movie. And maybe you even know the music from their solo careers, which is not even a part of the official Beatles canon. You know, and this is similar in some way to scripture. You know, most of us know the bigger hits, the bigger books. We know the epic narrative of Genesis. We know the giant prayer book of Psalms and the Gospels and the lengthy letters of Paul. But very few of us know much about the deeper cuts, the lesser-known deeper cuts of Scripture. And so in this series, we've been covering the little books like Haggai and Obadiah and 2nd and 3rd John. And today, we're going to be looking at a little book called Jude, or as a Beatles fan might say, there you go, boom, you're with me. Now, Jude is considered to be, by some scholars, the most neglected book in the New Testament. It's not preached about much. It's not mentioned much or, or studied much. It's, um, it's not quoted hardly at all. Many of us know it's there, but maybe we don't know too much about it. It is one of the most uh, neglected books, but why? Why is it? so neglected? Why is this little book so overlooked and why do we tend to skip over it? I think the main reason, I think this is the main reason. The author of this book, Jude, just assumes that the reader has the deepest level of biblical knowledge. You know, all throughout this little book, it's jam-packed with all these obscure Old Testament analogies and obscure references to Jewish literature and he just assumes that we know what he's talking about. And yes, he, he goes over the big hits as well, you know, Cain and Abel and Sodom and Gomorrah, but then he goes deeper and he gets a bit more obscure. 
And uh, he'll say something like, oh, you know, it's like uh, Korah's rebellion, or it's like the error of Balaam. And he just assumes that you know exactly what he's talking about. And then he goes even deeper, and he references a story from the book of Enoch, which is not even a part of the official canon of Scripture. And he references a story from the now lost book called The Testament of Moses. You know, he he rattles off all these obscure references. He has this encyclopedic knowledge of Scripture, and he just assumes that you do as well, and that makes it a tough read if you don't get all those references. And so today, I'm not going to be able to, in this short amount of time, explain every reference. You know, that would take too long, it would bog down the message, and it would complicate what is really a simple and clear core theme of this book. And so today, we're going to unpack unpack that core theme of the book of Jude and hopefully get a sense of how it relates to our life, to today and our church and our modern context. So here's some basic information about Jude. It is in the New Testament. It's near the back of your Bible. It's the next to last book. Uh, It has one chapter, 25 verses, and it's written by a man named Jude. As in Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. He was the brother of Jesus. They they grew up playing hide-and-seek together, and they, they grew up throwing dirt clods at each other. They probably had inside jokes. You know, they grew up together. And in Scripture, we see that Jude had this progression of faith. You know, he initially didn't believe that his brother was the Savior. He was like, I I grew up wearing your hand-me-downs. We used to play freeze tag together. We used to sword fight with sticks like David and Goliath. You ain't no Messiah. But eventually in Scripture, we see that Jude changes his mind after the resurrection and after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, Jude becomes a believer, a disciple, and a leader of the early church. And he writes this letter, not just to a particular church, but to everyone who is a follower of Jesus. And here is why he writes this letter. This is why he writes it. It's about 65 AD, and the church is flourishing It's spreading out, it's multiplying, it's growing in the thousands. And though the church has faced persecution from the Roman Empire, there is something more dangerous that is destroying the church from within. Like a cancer within the body of Christ, there is something eroding and corrupting and weakening and attacking the body of Christ from the inside. And so here's what he writes near the beginning of this letter. Verse 3, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, instead I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. And here's why. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Here in these two verses, in this passage, Jude reveals the main purpose for this letter, the main two themes. One, to expose false teachers. 
And second, to encourage believers to contend for the faith. And notice he says initially, he said, I, I wanted to write a different kind of letter. I, I wanted to write something encouraging and uplifting, something edifying, something that would build you up in the faith. But instead, I felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to switch gears and write something that is more pressing on my heart. He said, I'm, ur- I'm urging you, he says, to contend for the faith to fight for the faith, defend the truth of the gospel that has been handed down to you because it's being eroded and weakened and corrupted and twisted by these people who have wormed their way into the church. They have slipped in. They've crept in unnoticed. And these people, these false teachers bring disorder and confusion and division and doubt And they mix truth with heresy and they blur the teachings of Jesus and they dilute the gospel message and they distort the grace of God and they're leading Christians astray. And like a cancer, they are attacking the church from the inside. As I thought about all this, about the truth of scripture being distorted and blurred, I was reminded of this painting Let's see that painting. Now, obviously, we don't know what Jesus really looked like. You know, that might be, not be his skin color or his bone structure. But paintings like this serve as a symbol that remind, of, remind us of his sacrifice. They serve as a devotional image that reminds the viewers of his life, death, and resurrection. It serves as a symbol for his teachings and the beliefs and principles of our faith. But this particular painting was um, in a Catholic church, was shown in a Catholic church for over 100 years in Spain. But over time, it started to fade. It started to deteriorate. So let's see it faded and discolored. Faded over time. And so this lady within the church, she claimed she knew how to restore paintings. And so she got the approval from the clergy and she took it home and she attempted a DIY restoration of this painting. And a couple weeks pass, and eventually the restored painting made its way back to the church, and this is what it looked like when it made its way back to the church. Let's see it. It is considered to be the worst art restoration of all time. It is deemed impossible to restore back to its original setting. She gave... Jesus, a neck beard, and what some say is a monkey-like appearance. Some say he looks like a blurry potato or a sloth or a bearded monkey. She disfigured this image of Jesus. She left it deformed and blurred and distorted. But if you squint your eyes just right, it still sort of looks like an image of Jesus. Kind of. And that's what false teachers do with the truth of God's word. They mix truth with heresy. They distort, the, they distort doctrine. They blur the teachings of Jesus. They corrupt scripture. But if you squint your eyes just right, it still kind of looks like the truth of Jesus' word. It still has remnants of the truth. Now, back to the book of Jude. 
Uh, For the next 13 verses, Jude describes these false teachers, and he uses very descriptive language. He uses poetry and metaphor, analogies, and obscure references from the Old Testament to illustrate the harm they cause and the destruction that they leave in their wake. And so first here, he starts with three references from the Old Testament. Verse 5. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And I want to remind you of the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. And I want to remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns and how they gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So in this passage, three examples the Israelites, the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah. And notice he begins by saying, you know, I want to remind you, you guys already know this. You know, these, the early Christians had an intimate knowledge of scripture. They loved the word and they they knew all these stories. So he, Jude is saying, I'm reminding you, remember the Israelites who walked in unbelief. Remember the angels who were led astray by an evil influence. And remember the debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, it didn't work out for any of them. It led to their downfall and their demise. They gave in to the evil of their day, and it led to their downfall and demise. And this is the trajectory of false teachers and those who follow them. And then he goes on in the next, uh, in verse 11, he goes on to give three more references from the Old Testament, and he just rattles them off one after the next without explanation Verse 11, woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed into Korah's rebellion. So Cain, Balaam, Korah. Some of these references are starting to get a bit more obscure, but again, for the early Jewish believers who grew up with Scripture, these warnings would have made sense. And so very roughly, the way of Cain is the way of empty and dead religion and unbelief. The error of Balaam is that he was seduced by greed and he used his influence to lead people astray. And the rebellion of Korah was that he rejected the spiritual authority that God placed in his life. But again, Jude is saying, remember, this sort of thing has been playing out all throughout history, all throughout scripture. And so remember, And then he goes even deeper. Jude goes even deeper with his references. And he references stories from books that probably most of us have never heard of. You know, the Testament of Moses and First Enoch. He taps into the deepest cuts of scripture and Jewish literature. He uses every tool, every literary device. And in the next verse, he writes what seems to me to be an ancient version of a diss track. Now, if you don't know what a diss track is, a diss track is a song, uh, usually a rap song, in which you roast someone. You know, you use uh, creative poetry and play on words and clever metaphors to disparage 
and expose and discredit your opponent. So before I read this next verse, will someone give me a beat? You guys delivered. Oh, I can't believe you did. <laughs> Someone's like. No. No beats. Let's read this. Um, verse 12. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. By the way, each one of these colorful descriptions is alluding back to metaphors used in the Old Testament, and so early Christians would recognize these as callbacks. But here, Judah's saying, these people are blemishes in your church gathering, meaning they are a stain on the church body. And they are self-absorbed like shepherds who feed only themselves. And like clouds without rain and trees without fruit, they promise a lot of things, but they deliver nothing. They appear to have the word of God, but there's nothing in them. They appear to have substance, but they don't deliver anything. They, they can look and sound spiritual, but they don't produce anything. There's no harvest. There's no life. There's no capacity for transformation. And he's saying they are destructive like wild waves of the sea. They bring chaos wherever they go. And one translation says they are like hidden reefs that will shipwreck your faith. And they are like wandering stars, aimless in their direction, doomed forever to the blackest void of eternal darkness. Now, after looking at all these urgent warnings, after looking at all these obscure references about destruction and rebellion and unbelief, I can't help but wonder if some of you are thinking, yeah, we get it. Obviously, something was happening at the church at that time 2,000 years ago, right? Like Jude was obviously worried about something dangerous and destructive happening way back then. But what does that have to do with this church in this time, in this context? And what does that have to do with me? Like, do I need to be worried about waterless clouds and wandering stars? Is this sort of thing still happening? And I would say yes, this sort of thing played out all throughout Scripture, and it is still playing out today in our modern context. And it's something that I witnessed firsthand in California. See, I was at my previous church for over 10 years, and throughout that time, it was easy to see that the church was slowly unraveling, slowly becoming more healthy, unhealthy, slowly shrinking, and the, the sermons were more academic, uh, full of knowledge, but, but dry bones spiritually. And the pastor had this, this mentor, um, not necessarily a pastoral mentor or a spiritual mentor, but more of an academic mentor. And his theories and his thoughts and influences had a huge 
influence on the pastor. And in 2019, both of them gave um, two sermons. They both got up on stage and they taught for two weeks sermons that revealed some of the weird little esoteric pseudo-academic theories that these two had been discussing. And their, th- their sermons caused a lot of doubt and confusion and disorder, and they blurred and distorted and disrespected the truth of God's word. And here's what they taught. They taught that the Old Testament is reliable but that the New Testament has been corrupted. That's what they said, it's been corrupted because by that time, pagan influences, uh, pagan religions and mythologies had infiltrated the beliefs and writings of the authors of the New Testament. And so when you read the words of Paul and Peter and the gospel writers, it's hard to know exactly what is true. And we need this mentor to reveal to us the things that are true and the things of scripture that are not true, that have been corrupted. And like a blurry painting from a failed restoration, they left us with a disfigured and distorted view of Scripture. And it came out of nowhere, and it went over the heads of many people in the room. It was so odd and convoluted. But immediately after, there was a first wave of people who left the church, including one of my mentors, including people on the worship team, friends left, leaders of ministries left, And these people didn't just leave after hearing a sermon. No, they met with a pastor to see where he was coming from. But after meeting with him and seeing how lost he was, they left. And during this time, I was having, uh, you know, multiple meetings with this pastor to see where his heart was, to see where he was coming from. And I was like, do you believe all this? I mean, do you really believe it? I asked him, can you provide a source? Can you provide one source from a scholar or a theologian who believes this theory? And he could not. And yet he still believed it because of this mentor. I asked him, do you have any spiritual or pastoral mentors? And no, he did not. And during these meetings, I was really confused. It was really confusing, but mostly I just felt bad for him. In these meetings, he seemed so lost. This, this guy who had a legit master's degree in Bible this guy who had years of experience uh, preaching and pastoring a church, he was lost and he was led, led astray by this false teacher. And this is similar. Uh, this is why you know, Jude wrote all those, about all those examples of people who you know, stumbled, who walked in unbelief, who rebelled, and who did not contend for the faith to not contend for the truth of Scripture that's been handed down to us. And if this can happen to a pastor, right, just think, if this can happen to a pastor and if it can happen to numerous people throughout Scripture, isn't it possible that it can happen to us? And so Jude is saying, wake up. Jude's saying, I need you to wake up, I need you to be alert, and I need you to fight for the faith. Don't be complacent. Don't be passive or indifferent or apathetic in your faith. For there are certain influences who will slip into your life, and if you're not fighting, and if you're not contending, those influences will deter you away from what God has called you to. 
you know, the lifestyle, the purpose, the morals, the calling that God has called you to walk in. And so Jude is saying, there is a war going on for your mind. There's a war going on for your ministry. There's a war going on for your spouse, for your marriage, for your six-year-old boy and your 14-year-old daughter. There's a war going on for your family. And it's a war against false teachers and corrupt influences, but also a war against complacency and indifference and passivity. And so here Jude is urging us to contend for the faith, contend for your personal faith. And so how do we do that? How do we contend for the faith? Jude lays it out in verse 20 and 21. He gives us three ways to contend for our faith. He says, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So again, in this passage, Jude gives us three ways to contend for our faith. First, he says, contend by building yourself up in the faith, right? If you're going to go to war, if you're going to fight, if you're going to battle, build yourself up. And so how do we do that? Well, we do that. Yes, we do that by worship and by communing with God and connecting with people. You know, Scripture says we are to build each other up and strengthen one another. But really, a huge way to build yourself up in the faith is to know the Word of God and to meditate on Scripture and to cultivate a curiosity and a fascination with the text. Going back to the Beatles analogy, you know, I was thinking... How do we find ourselves on the different levels of knowledge about their music? You know, to be at that first base level, you pretty pretty much just passively absorb their music just by being alive, right? You don't have to put in in, in any effort. Their music is in movies and commercials and radio. It's sewn into the fabric of our cultural context. And so the natural byproduct is that most of us know something about their bigger hits. But at that next level, you know, maybe you're at that next level of their knowledge of their music because maybe someone in your family exposed you to some of their music, and so therefore you somewhat passively grew in your overall knowledge of their music. But at a certain point, to enter into the deeper levels of knowledge about their music, you have to dig deep. You have to take initiative You have to pour over their back catalog and learn about their history and the context in which their songs were written. Now, again, this is just an analogy about something that's not that important. But how true is that for Scripture as well? How true is that for what it requires to truly build ourselves up in the faith? Right? You have to dig deep. You have to take initiative you have to pour over the text, the big hits and the obscure. You have to have an intimate knowledge with Scripture, study the depths of it, the history of it, the context of it. And when you're at that level, your knowledge and your passion for, their, uh, for Scripture, it just leaks out of you in normal conversation. And it, it informs 
and shapes your life and it builds your faith. A faith that is your own and not just something that you passively absorbed as a natural byproduct of living in this social and cultural setting. And this is not just about acquiring more knowledge. It's about building up our faith, right? The more you build up your faith, the easier it is to discern lies and distortions of the truth, right? If there's something trying to tear it down, then we need to be actively building it up. And you might say, you know, I try. I, I read something yesterday and I already forgot it or I don't remember anything that I read. And I would say, yeah, I don't remember what I ate yesterday, but it still nourished me. It still fed me. It still built me up. And so second, Jude says, contend for the faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. He's reminding us that we're filled with the Holy Spirit And therefore, we should be led by the Holy Spirit to pray in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, first of all, earlier in Jude, verse 19, Jude says these false teachers do not have the Holy Spirit. They don't understand things of the Spirit. They are not led by the Spirit. So he's encouraging us to pray in the Spirit. And again, what does that mean? I I think of Paul, uh, throughout his letters, the Apostle Paul says, walk in the Spirit live in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so one way to look at this is to live with with a heart posture of constant awareness of the Holy Spirit, to be in tune with the Spirit and listen for direction and guidance and wisdom and discernment and truth. It's letting the Holy Spirit guide you in your faith to illuminate the truth, to convict you and empower you. Also, Paul says, when you go to battle, when you put on the full armor of God, he says, pray in the spirit. So again, anytime you battle, fight or contend, pray in the spirit. And finally, uh, Jude says, contend for the faith by keeping yourself in the love of God. Remain in the love of God, meaning don't be led astray. Don't drift away from what he's called you to. Don't be like a wandering star doomed forever to the blackest void of eternal darkness. Remain in the love of God. Remain in the faith, remain in worship, remain in community, remain in prayer. Right? He's saying don't abandon the faith. And even in the middle of difficulty and trials and hardships, he's saying don't, don't abandon the faith. And even if you have church hurt, and even if, if you're disappointed that things didn't work out like you thought they were going to, you know, don't abandon the faith. Even if you feel spiritually numb and spiritually dull and it feels like you're just going through the motions and it feels like your love for the Lord has faded over time and you can't even remember exactly what you were so excited about in the first, first place, Jude is saying don't am- abandon the faith. And even if you feel done and you feel like giving up and you feel tired, and it feels like you have no strength to build yourself up. Jude says, don't don't abandon the faith. Stay in the love of God. Remain under the influence of the Holy Spirit and the truth of Scripture and the love of God. Towards the end of his life, at the end of his last letter, Paul says this. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. 
I have kept the faith. So this little book, this obscure letter of Jude, reminds us, encourages us to contend for the faith. And throughout this letter, over and over again, Jude says, you know, remember. He says, remember the faith that has been handed down to you. Remember the truth of the gospel and the authority of Scripture. Remember how some were led astray and how that led to their demise and downfall. Remember the mistakes of the past and remember the story of God's redemptive love, grace, and forgiveness. Right now, as we take communion, we remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We remember that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we do, we remember that we have a faith worth contending for. So let's get communion ready. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. So Lord, as we consider the truth of your word, as we remember things maybe that were at the back of our mind, as we remember things forgotten, I pray that we would step out of a spirit of complacency, of indifference, of, ap- of, of apathy, of passivity, and that we would be a people who would pour over the text with a curiosity and a fascination, knowing it is your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring, um, as you bring discernment and truth into our life, that we would be open to hear it that we would be a people that pray in the Spirit, pray with an awareness of your Spirit leading us in every facet of life, leading us in the truth, convicting us, empowering us. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for who you are and who we are in you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, Jude ends... The last two verses of Jude is what we consider a doxology, and that means a word of praise. So will you stand up with us as I read the last two verses before we close in worship? The book of Jude ends in worship. He says, Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away, and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.